ladies and gentlemen, a formal welcome to Daily Power Parsha. Welcome to Daily Power Parsha. Today is Friday, May 14th, and we are going to be studying the last three readings of the Torah portion of Bamidbar. Um, I'm going to pull up this on my end. Give me a moment, please. One second, one second. Do, 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 do. Okay, fifth reading. And let's get Zoom going. Share screen. Okay, I hope this works. Can you guys see Torah reading for about Midbar? Is that coming up? Okay, great. Here we go. This is Numbers chapter 3. Verse 14, again, Chumash Bamidbar is also known as Chumash Apikudim. It's the, it's, the it's the book of the desert, Bamidbar, the desert, but it's also the book of numbers because of the various counts, the censuses that are happening. And here we have another example of that in the fifth reading. So the Lord spoke to Moses in the Sinai desert, saying, Count the children of Levi according to their father's house, according to their families, count all males from the age of one month and upward. And as we discussed in our Torah studies class on Wednesday night, this count of 30 days and up, one month and, and forward, is, uh, and, and upward is very significant. It speaks to the, the value of the child, the value of just being, not necessarily what we're doing or what we're capable of doing, but the value of just being. Verse 16, so Moses counted them according to God's word, just as he was commanded. These were the names of Levi's sons. So we're going to go through the count now. Levi's sons, he had three sons, Gershon, Kahat, and Merari. The names of the sons of Gershon, according to their families, were Libni and Shimi. And the sons of Kahat, according to their families, were Amram, Yitzhar, Hebron, and Uziel. And the sons of Merari, according to their families, were Machli and Mushi. These are the families of Levi, according to their father's houses. For Gershon, the Libnite family, and the Shimeite family, these are the Gershonite families. The sum, here we go. The sum was made according to the number of males from the age of one month and upward. The tally amounted to 7,500. Again, this is um, for the... This is for, one second, yeah, yeah, there we go. All the Levites, one month and up, right, totaled 7,500, 7,500 Levites. That's a much smaller number than the tribes. The tribes were like, what, 55,000, 47,000. This is, the, the Levites were 7,500, 7, relatively small number. The Gershonite families shall camp behind the Mishkan to the west. The prince of the father's house of the Gershonites is Eliasaf, the son of Lael. Or, Eli, sorry, Eliasaf, the son of Lael. The charge of the sons of Gershon in the tent of meeting included the Mishkan, the tent, its cover, and the screen for the entrance to the tent of meeting. That's what the, the Gershonites were doing. They were carrying the, um, the tapestries. The hangs of the courtyard, the screen at the entrance to the courtyard, which is around the Mishkan and the altar, its ropes, as well as all the work involved. That was their malacha, that was their work. 
For Kahat, the Amramite family, the Yitzharite family, the Hebronite family, and the Uzielite family, these are the families of Kahat. The number of males, of all males, of one month and upward amounted to, I'm sorry, the count that we had before, 7,500? Sorry, yeah, 7,500 were all the Gershonites, the Gershonite um, um, Levites, because it's counting each one individually. For Kahat, right, here we have a different number. The number of all males were 8,600, the keepers of the charge of the holy. The families of the son of Kahat shall camp to the south side of the Mishkan. The prince of the father's house of the, Kahat, of the Kahotite families is Elisaphan, the son of Uziel. Their charge included the ark, the table, the menorah, the altars, the holy utensils with which they would minister, and the screen and all the work involved. So, essentially, we just read before about the, um, the Gershonites. The Gershonites were carrying the Gershon Levite family. They were all involved in the curtains, the tapestries, the dividing screens, etc. The, the Kahatites, the family of Kahat, the, of the Levite families, of the, of the Levite tribe, their job was the utensils, the vessels, the ark, the table, the menorah, the altars, the utensils, etc., all this stuff. The prince, verse 32, the prince over all the princes of the Levites shall be Elazar, the son of Aaron the Kohen, the appointment of all the keepers of the charge of the holy. So he oversees them all. For Merari, let's talk about Merari, the, the final family of the Levites, the Machle family and the Mushai family, these are the families of Merari. Their tally, according to the number of males from the age of one month and upward, was 6,200. So we had 7,500 of the Gershonites. We had 8,600 of the Kahatites. And the Merarites, or the Merari people, the Merari family, their number was, their number was 6,200, 6,200. The prince of the father's house of the Merai families is Zuriel, the son of Avichael. They shall camp to the north side of the Mishkan. The appointment of the charge of the sons of Merari included the planks of the Mishkan, its bars, its pillars, its sockets, all its utensils, and all the work involved. They were about the structure of the Mishkan itself, the walls, the beams, the sockets, etc. Also the pillars of the surrounding courtyard, their sockets, their stakes, their ropes. As you recall, the Mishkan was a tabernacle that was, had a building, but also had an outdoor area surrounded by an exterior fence wall type thing. All of the, all the perimeter stuff, the wall stuff, was all carried and taken care of by the Merari family. Camping in front of the Mishkan, in front of the tent of meeting to the east, were Moses, Aaron, and his sons the keepers of the charge of the sanctuary as a trust for the children of Israel, and the outsider who approaches shall be put to death. They were basically all encircling the Mishkan. So to the east, I'm going to go backwards. To the east were Moses and Aaron. So remember, picture a rectangle, kind of a horizontal rectangle, if you're looking from the top down, right? So to the east, which is to the right, you know, if, you're, if north is in front of you and south is behind you, so east is to the right. So to the right were Moses, Aaron, and his sons. So their families were to the east, to the right side of the Mishkan. Um, to the north, right, we're going to go maybe in counterclockwise. To the north were the Mirari families, who were in charge of the beams and the sockets and the walls. Um, to the south, no, we're not actually going in order here. To the south were the Kahat, Kahatite families, 
and they were all about the, uh, the vessels of the Mishkan. And to the west were the Gershonite families. Right? If you look at the here, west, Gershonite families. So they and, they, and their job was about the screens, curtains, tapestries, etc. So the Mishkan was surrounded by these three families of Levites plus Moses, Aaron, and his sons on the east side. So it was flanked on all sides by Levites. And then outside of that perimeter where it was the encampment of the rest of the Jewish people or the vast majority of the Jewish people by their tribes. Three tribes to the east, three to the south, three to the west, and three to the north. And essentially, as we discussed also Wednesday night, the Levites formed a perimeter around the Mishkan as keepers of the charge. They were the ones to make sure that no one who didn't belong at the tabernacle should enter. What's the final tally? Here we go. The sum of the male Levites according to their families from the age of one month and up, counted by Moses and Aaron according to the word of the Lord, was, if you add them all together, exactly 22,000. So there are 22,000 Levites, male Levites, from one month and up. 7,500, uh, 6,200, and another that was, um, I forget the other one. The other one was, there was 75, 86, and 62. And that should total 22,000. Okay, make sense so far? Yes? All right. Let's go to the sixth reading, today's reading. The Lord said to Moses, Now that we counted the Levites, now we're going to count every firstborn male aged one month and upward of the children of Israel. Remember I told you, I think I told you, maybe Wednesday night, maybe in DPP, I don't remember, but the Levites served in the, in the tabernacle, but really it was the firstborn who were supposed to do that, but they sinned with the golden calf, so God basically yanked the, the privilege and responsibility away from the firstborn and gave it to the Levites. So now God says to Moses, since the Levites are going to take the place of the firstborn, and we know how many Levites there are, now we have to count the firstborn to make sure it's a one-for-one -one trade. Are you with me on that? Let's see if there's exactly the right number. So count every firstborn male from all the other tribes, age one month and upward, of the children of Israel, and take the number of their names. And you shall take the Levites from me, I am the Lord instead, oh, it's right here, instead of all the firstborns among the children of Israel. Literally, God says, you counted the Levites, now count the firstborn, and I want you to take the, the Levites instead of the firstborn. And take the Levite animals instead of all the firstborn animals of the children of Israel. So Moses counted every firstborn of Israel as the Lord had commanded him. The firstborn males, aged one month and upward, according to the number of names, was, oh, perfect, 22,273. Oh, so we have a little bit more firstborn than Levites, right? There were 22,000 Levites, but 22,273 firstborn. So that means 273 Jews didn't have a Levite to represent them. Are you with me on that? There's, there's 273 more firstborn than Levites. So God says to Moses the following, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Take the Levites instead of all the firstborn among the children of Israel and the Levite animals instead of their animals, and the Levites shall be mine, I am the Lord. As for the 273 of the children of Israel who require redemption, who are in excess of the Levites, so for 22,000 is a one-for-one -one swap. I'll trade you a Levite for a firstborn. But there are 273 firstborn that didn't have a Levite. 
So what do you do for that? So for those 273 firstborn, you shall take five shekels per head. According to the holy shekel, which by the shekels is 20 geras, you shall give the money the five times 273. Are you with me on the math here? Pull up a calculator. Right? What is the math? Five times 273 equals 1,365. 1,365. That's what we're... That's what we're doing, right? So that's the amount of shekels that have to be paid. Five shekels per head times 273. Um, you shall give the money, this money, to Aaron and his sons in redemption for the firstborn who are in excess of them. In other words, the extra 273 firstborns that are above and beyond the 22,000 Levites, that has, the money has to be paid to Aaron and his sons. So Moses took the redemption money. For those in excess of those redeemed by the Levites, he took the money from the firstborn of the children of Israel, 1,000, oh, I didn't have to do the calculator, 1,365 of the holy shekels. The Torah literally does the math for us, right? Five shekels times 273 people is 1,365 shekels. Then Moses gave the money of those redeemed to Aaron and his sons in accordance with the word, with the word of the Lord as the Lord had commanded Moses. Now, I, I can tell you a, 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 what I think is a really cool interpretation of this. Right? It says that Moses gave the money. It's a lot of money, by the way. 1,365 shekels back in the day. It's a decent, that's a decent coin. So it says that Moses gave it to Aaron and his sons in accordance with the word of the Lord as the Lord had commanded Moses. Isn't that repetitive? It says he did it in accordance with the word of the Lord as the Lord commanded Moses. That seems to say it twice. It seems redundant. So, there's a beautiful commentary that I love that says that he did it per God's command. And even if you think that Moses got enjoyment for giving his brother and his nephews some extra cash, the Torah emphasizes it's as the Lord had commanded Moses. He did it because he was told to do it, not because he had a personal agenda to help out his family and relatives. Are you with me on that? Okay, nepotism was not a play here. He was simply following Hashem's command. Let's continue with Numbers chapter 4, and this is tomorrow's reading, the seventh reading, the last one of the book of Numbers. The Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, Make account of the sons of Kahat uh, from among the children of Levi by their families, according to their father's houses. In other words, another census of the Kahat family. We just counted them before, but we're going to do another one. And this time, the count is not from 30 days and up, one month up. It's specifically from the age of 30 years old until the age of 50. All who enter the service to do the work in the tent of meeting. In other words, the, 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 the work of Kahat to carry and take care of the vessels, the ark, the menorah, the table, the altars, the implements, the utensils, all of that work was done by the Kahat Levites when they turned 30 until they turned 50 and then they had a retirement from that work. They did other stuff, but not that work. So God says, I want you to count, God says to Moses and Aaron, I want you to count the number of working Levite Kahatites. Count the number of 30 to 50 year old Kahatites who will be doing the service. And the following is the service of the sons of Kahat in the tent of meeting of the Holy of Holies. So here we go. This is what they're supposed to be doing. When the camp is about to travel, Aaron and the son shall come and take down the dividing screen. With it, they shall cover the ark of the testimony. So the ark gets covered. You know, like when you walk into a synagogue, um, the Torah is in the ark and there's a curtain in front of the ark. There's a curtain. So it's kind, of it's, it's kind of symbolic of what happened here is that the ark, when they moved, when they traveled, 
you know, when it was out there in the open, not behind, you know, closed doors, um, it was covered with a dividing screen, basically some sort of curtain. It was covered with that. They shall place upon it a covering of tachash skin, and on top of that, they should spread a cloth of pure blue wool. So there's multiple coverings on top of the ark. Then they shall put its poles in, its, in place. They shall spread a cloth of blue wool on the show table. And they shall place on it the forms, spoons. Forms are like the molds for the bread. Like um, if you bake bread into like, uh, you know, a shape. So that's the forms, the spoons, supports, and covering frames. This was the show bread. Yeah. Is there any specification of what exact tone of blue? Great question. The word here is techelet, which is the same blue of the tzitzit. It's the same blue. Now the question is, so what is that blue? But you know, of course, that that's a, you know, you look into it and you realize, all right, it's not so, we don't know today exactly what it is. There are different theories as to what it is, but I've seen that range from kind of like somewhat of an indigo to a light blue. I've seen, I've seen a range of techelet possibilities. Back then, they had a very special... Um, source of that of that dye today, no one knows exactly. I mean, some people claim they know, but again, if you do the research on that, which I know you have looked into that, it, it there's a there's a bit a bit of a variance as as to what exactly it looked like and where exactly it came from. And each one says, "I know what it is," and that's why many people are like, "No one knows what it is." Like Chabad custom is, we don't wear it. We don't we don't integrate that thing into the tzitzit. I mean, you could wear blue otherwise, but not as the mitzvah. But your question is, what color was this blue wool? It was the same techelet. It's, it's the same word. <coughs> Ray. Was that, was that from a fish? Isn't there a... a oh, maybe that's the fish that, you, that everyone's going to eat from, the Leviathan. That's the Leviathan, yeah, yeah. It was from a... It was from a... Some sort of creature. I don't know if it was a sea creature or a land... I think it was a land creature that oh. the dye came from. But, you know, it could be that it was exclusive to those times, that they needed it. And, like, the tachash skins themselves were only an animal that existed in the times of the Mishkan for this very purpose. So it's, um, I believe it was, what's it called? Is it the chilazon, or is that the one, is that the worm that cut the, the stones because you couldn't use metal implements? I don't remember. But anyway, they, there was one worm or one creature that cut the stones, because they couldn't use metal implements because you can't use metal on the, on, the, on, the, on the altar. But then, there was something else for the dye. I don't remember. I mean, you can look it up. Tehela dye source. And I'm sure it'll come up, the original, you know, the original name of it. But again, what it is and does it exist today? There's speculation. And, and some say they know for sure. But I don't know. I don't know for sure. The Hoshin breastplate, there's differing... Yeah, exactly. Because anytime you're dealing with something that's like not a clear-cut thing, it's like, okay, we think it is this, but someone's like, no, I think it's something else based on other research. And unless you're there, you know, unless you were there, how do you say definitively? I mean, a lot of stuff, we know what it is, right? I mean, normative Hebrew language, we know what it is. But once you get into like these obscure... Or references. At that point, there's there's going to be a little bit more uncertainty and some speculation. 
I'm not trying to minimize the opinion. It's just saying, look, it's not, not necessarily definitive. Okay. So there's no glue used in the talit in any part of the talit? There are sometimes people integrate blue. So the Chabad talit is, is white and black. But I've seen blue used. But that in the actual garment is not where the mitzvah was. The mitzvah of blue in the, in the tzitzit was for the strings. It was to use a, to use a string of, of blue. Um, but some integrated into the body of the shawl, just, I don't know, design-wise, you know, why not? Um, Chabad uses a, a very simple, traditional white with a few black stripes at the bottom. Why that design? I've heard that there's Kabbalistic significance. I haven't studied the sources myself, so I can't tell you if and what those are, but I've heard that there is um, significance to that. Anyway, um, but I could see someone saying, hey, I would love my, even if I don't know what I should do with the strings, I'd love to wear a, ta- a shawl itself that has some blue in it as kind of a, you know, a reference. Even if it's not the mitzvah, a reference point. Again, that's where different customs come in and different, different approaches. Um, okay, so... Okay, the, the point over here that we're doing right now is to say that every, all of the items before they were transported... They were all covered and wrapped, right? I mean, think of, you know, when you're, Lahavda, when, when you're moving, you wrap your items before you transport them. But here, it wasn't really like for fragility. It was more like for respect. You're not just carrying the menorah on your shoulders or on a thing just open like that. You, you cover it. So we're talking now, we were, I think we we're in the middle of the show table, right? And so verse 7, they shall spread a cloth of blue wool on the show table, and they shall place on it the form, spoon, supports, and covering frames, the continual bread, the lechem upon him, lechem atamid, can be placed upon it. They shall spread upon them a cloth of crimson wool, different color, and cover that with a covering of tachash skin. There you go. They shall put its poles in, into place. Very colorful either way. We're talking about blue and now crimson and now tachash skin, which was a multi, if you remember, it was like the multicolor unicorn, I wasn't exactly unicorn, but multicolor animal. Um, anyway, they shall take a blue cloth and cover the menorah for lighting and its lamps, its tongs, its scoops, and all its oil vessels used in performing its service. And they shall put it and its vessels into a covering of tachash skin and place it on a pole. They shall spread a cloth of blue wool over the golden altar. Oh, not the golden altar. They shall spread a cloth of blue wool over the golden altar, that's the inner incense altar, and cover it with a covering of tachash skin and then set its poles in place. They shall take all the vessels. Hold on, where am I? Verse 12. They shall, take, they shall then take all the vessels used in the holy, put them into a cloth of blue wool, covering them with a covering of the tachash skin, and put them on a pole. They shall remove the ashes from the altar and spread a cloth of purple wool over it. Never a dull moment here with these colors. They shall place on, I guess it was color-coded. It's like, oh, I know what that is. That's the ark. That's the uh, menorah. That's the, that's the outer altar. So this is the outer altar, the animal offering altar. This is purple wool on top of it. They shall place on it all the utensils which they minister upon it, the scoops, the forks, the shovels, and all the basins, all the implements of the altar. They shall then spread over the covering of tachar skin and set its poles into place. Aaron and his sons shall finish covering the holy and all the vessels of the holy when the camp is set to travel. And following that, so the, the priests, they do the covering. And then the Levites, sons of Kahat, come to carry them. 
but they shall not touch the sacred objects, for then they will die. In other words, it had to be covered so that their skin didn't touch the actual vessels. These are the burden of the sons of Kahat for the tent of meeting. In other words, this is the work, this is the task for the Kahatites. What did they do? They were dealing with the vessels. So the vessels were set for travel by the priest, by the Kohanim, and then the Levite from the family of Kahat, the Levites from Kahat, they would take over from there and do the actual transporting. All right, now, what's the, what's the job of Elazar? The charge of Elazar, the son of Aaron the Kohen, oil for lighting, the incense of spices, the continual daily meal offering, and the anointing oil, the charge for the entire Mishkan and all that, it, that is in it, of the holy and its furnishings. So that's the job of Elazar. The Lord spoke to Moses and, to, and Aaron saying, Do not cause the tribe of the families of Kahat to be cut off from among the Levites. In other words, we don't want the Kahatites to lose their life. So help them be careful. Do this for them so that they should live and not die. When they approach the Holy of Holies, Aaron and his son shall first come and appoint each man individually to his task and his load. They shall not come in to see when the holy vessels are being wrapped up, lest they die. In other words, make sure that you're wrapping everything before the Kahatites come there for, for, for transportation. It's kind of like, again, Lahavdil, when the moving company comes in, are they boxing or are you boxing? Right? And here, you box and then they come in. You, the Kohanim, make sure that you boxed everything, that you put everything, you wrapped everything up, and then they come in and do it. And God says, make sure that's done because I don't want the tribe of the families of Kahat to be cut off from among the Levites. I don't want them, their lives to be cut short in any way. Make sure it's being done correctly. So what's the moral of the story? When something is holy, we cover it. When something is precious, we cover it. When something is dear to us, we cover it. It's the idea of modesty. It's the idea of sanctity. It's the idea of um, discretion. Not putting everything out there. Oh, this is the holy thing. Oh, look, look what it is. We live in a world, I'm giving now a, a bit of a, of, of a teaching based on what, we, what we've learned today. We live in a world where nothing is sacred. Everything's out there. Right? And it's like more, it's, it feels like a mitzvah that people feel. Like the more they put about their lives and everything, you know, out there on social media, etc., you know, the more progressive things are. And Judaism says, look, we shouldn't be living lies and, you know, hiding, whatever, but something that's sacred, something that's really dear, something that's beautiful, you know, let's say a relationship, for example, a very close relationship, an intimate relationship, you don't need to put everything out there. On the contrary, putting it out there inevitably ends up harming that which was so sacred. And again, I'm not, I don't have anything or anyone specifically in mind, but it's a trend that we see. That things are put out there and it doesn't end well. It's, it's, not, it's no one's business. It doesn't end well. It's not, it's, not, it's not the Jewish way. Something is precious. We protect it. It's sacred. There's discretion involved. It's not just flaunted and put out there. It's not, it's, 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 not, it's not the proper way. So the things that are really dear and important, we should be protective of. And, uh, and always recognize that the blessing, Hashem's blessing, typically rests on things that are done with discretion. The Talmud says that the bracha, the blessing, is found in a davar, in a thing that is concealed from the eye. Something that is a little bit 
concealed, a little bit hidden, that's where the true blessing can lie. All right, so that's it for the Torah reading of, of Bamidbar, the opening section or parsha of the book of Numbers. And now, <coughs> now what I want to do is learn some Mishnayot. If you will join me for, for some Mishnah study. In honor of my grandfather, Tzvi Hirsch ben Chaim Yishayel Kohen. May his neshama have an aliyah. May his soul have the merit and the ascent that it, uh, you know, that it, that it, that it needs, deserves, etc. And may our, may our study together indeed be a good merit for my, my grandfather's memory. Okay, we're talking about the mitzvah of reciting Shema. We spoke about when you do it, how you do it, what you say. Let's talk about some more parameters of the mitzvah of saying Shema. Twice a day we have a mitzvah in the morning and the evening to say the Shema. It's taken from, from scripture, from the verses in Torah itself. So let's talk about perhaps exemptions. The Mishnah continues. A groom... A newlywed groom is exempt from the recitation of Shema on the first night of his marriage, which was generally Wednesday night until Saturday night, if he has not taken action. That's the Mishnah's way, it's a euphemism of saying, and consummated the marriage. In other words, if he has not yet consummated the marriage, then you're exempt from Shema until that happens. Why? As he is preoccupied by concerns related to consummation of the marriage. The Mishnah relates that there was an incident where Rabbi Gamliel married a woman and recited Shema even the first night. His students said to him, Didn't our teacher teach us, didn't you teach us that a groom is exempt from the recitation of Shema the first night? He answered them, Nevertheless, I'm not listening to you to refrain from reciting Shema and in doing so, preclude myself from the acceptance of the yoke of the kingdom of heaven for even one moment. So again, a groom is exempt the first night of marriage, the first night of the wedding night, from saying Shema. But as Rabbi Gamliel in this story demonstrated, although he was exempt, but nothing was stopping him from doing it, right? He was, he was going to find a way to, to get Shema in amidst everything else that he was otherwise um, preoccupied with. Um, makes sense? Yes, we don't have to go into details, right? It makes sense? Okay, the, the Mishnah, again, you see here an example of the Mishnah speaking about a, a you know, a, a topic, but doing so in a sensitive way. It doesn't, like, get detailed, you know, speak in very detailed language. It, everyone knows what it's talking about. It's the wedding night, and it says, you know, you're involved in other things. Shema doesn't have to happen. But you know what? This rabbi made sure Shema happened nonetheless. Okay. Mishnah number six. The Mishnah relates another episode portraying unusual conduct by the same Rabbi Gamliel. By the way, Rabbi Gamliel was like one of the leaders of the Jewish people in his time. He was like one of the heads. He bathed on the first night after his wife died. Uh-oh, hold on. It looks like my internet connection is a little bit unstable. Am I still with you? Can you guys still hear me? Yeah? Okay, let me know. Okay, let me know if I cut out because I got a message. Internet is unstable. All right, I'm, I'm in. As you see, I'm in a different environment, and this is the one which sometimes glitches on me. 
So that's why I'm trying to go, go a little bit fast today to get it in before my bandwidth shuts down. Um, so he went, he went, he, he bathed on the first night after his wife died. Now, if anyone in mourn, anyone that's sat Shiva before knows that you don't bathe or shower typically for the Shiva. So, I mean, again, there are exceptions and whatever, but typically we avoid bathing. So he, and he bathed the, at the first night after his wife died. So his student said to him, have you not taught us, our teacher, that a mourner is prohibited to bathe? He answered them, I am not like other people. Sorry, I am, yeah, I'm not like other people. I am delicate, istinous. For me, not bathing causes actual physical distress, and even a mourner need not f- suffer physical distress as a part of his mourning. This teaches us an unbelievable uh, law. The halacha is, again, somebody who, God forbid, loses a loved one and is sitting shiva in that mourning period, seven days, does not bathe or shower. But here this mission is telling us why. It's because we're not supposed to engage in some pleasurable activity. But if not showering or bathing is going to cause distress, if a person is very particular about their hygiene, and are you with me on this, and not showering or bathing is not, it's not just, it's not, I'm not going to have that enjoyable experience, but I'm actually going to be suffering because of that, then you're allowed to do it. So here we have an important caveat to the rule of not bathing during Shiva. Yes, but an istanis, someone who needs it, is, is permitted. We're not supposed to heap more distress on the mourner by saying you can't if you really need to. Okay, so again, this is halacha, Jewish law, with, a, with, with understanding the spirit of the law. It's not just, you know, un, un, unthinking. Another exceptional incident is related. And when Rabbi Gamliel's servant, I don't like the word slave, when his servant Tavi, by the way, Tavi was a scholar. He was, Tavi was, um, he would have discussions with the, with the scholars. So he was uh, not a simple dude. I don't believe he was Jewish, but he, he was very learned because he, he was in uh, Rabbi Gamliel's house. So when his slave Tavi died, when his servant Tavi died, Rabbi Gamliel accepted condolences for his death as one would for a close family member. In other words, he basically almost like sat shiva for him. His student said to him, have you not taught us, our teacher, that one does not accept condolences for the death of a servant? Rabbi Gamliel said to his servants, my servant Tavi is not like all the rest of the servants. He was virtuous and it is appropriate to accord in the same respect accorded to a family member. Okay? Again, Exceptions to the rule, which tells us about the nature of halacha, that halacha is not monolithic. Halacha is always working with the person, you know, and the circumstances. Never one size fits all when it comes to Jewish law. Very, very, it ne- never, never happens like that. Um, it's very important, by the way, for a rav, not, see, there are rabbis, and then there's what we call a rav. A rabbi is someone who's, you know, knowledgeable in Jewish law and Jewish, whatever. But a rav is somebody who actually issues rulings, you know, for the community. So a rav has to know not just the law, but has to have a good understanding of people. Because based on people, the law could be modified. Not that the law changes, but the law is only set in a certain context. And you have to know, you have to know what the law is. Like, for example, you know, not bathing during shiva, during the morning period. A person could learn that and say, oh, it's absolute. That's what his students thought. But if you know the spirit of the law, you know that it's, 
it's, it was designed so that a person should not be indulging in pleasures right after their, their loved one passed away. But if it's not about pleasure, if it's about, on the contrary, avoiding displeasure or pain, then it's permitted. All right, I hope what I'm saying makes sense. Uh, number eight. With regard to the recitation of Shema on one's wedding night, the sages said that if despite his exemption, a groom wishes to recite Shema on the first night, he may do so, like we said before. Rabban Shimon ben Gamliel <coughs> says, not everyone who wishes to assume the reputation of a God-fearing person may assume it. In other words, someone who, re- who is really bothered by not saying Shema should say it, but not everyone who says, oh yeah, I'm in that category, is necessarily in that category. Right? And consequently, not everyone who wishes to recite Shema on his wedding night may do so. It's really only meant for those that really can't go a night without saying Shema and would be bothered by not saying Shema. <coughs> All right, I'm going to close out for today. So we kind of did this quick. We did three readings in the Torah portion and we did four Mishnahs of Mishnayot. And we've covered now, in, in all, we've covered the first two chapters of Tractate Brachot. So we have another seven chapters left, right? Because you see here, Brachot has a sum total of nine chapters. <coughs> two down, seven to go. Okay. All right, I'm going to stop the screen share and wish everybody a good Shabbos. Um, Ray and Sandrine and Donna and Matt. Matt, great to see you. I love the clouds, love the blue sky, love it. So um, I want to wish everybody a good Shabbos. And of course, this is a very special Shabbos. It's the Shabbat before the holiday of Shavuot, which begins Sunday night. So join us Sunday night. For we'll join us Shabbos, join us Sunday night for study for Torah study. It's going to take place starting at 10:30 p.m. and it's, it goes as long as uh, as you want. You can stay as long as you want. We have classes on the hour 10:30, 11:30, and 12:30, and then we have also Monday morning services at 10 a.m. with a reading of the Ten Commandments. But we have a special party for Shavuot later on with the Ten Commandments as well, again, at 5.30. So if you want to come in the morning, you can. But if you prefer the afternoon with the food and more of the celebration, that's going to take place at 5.30 p.m. outside, behind Chabad in town, adjacent to the Beltline. So we'll have a reading of the Ten Commandments. We'll have dairy, food, and it's going to be a nice party and celebration. The rabbis stay from midnight all the way to 10 a.m.? So, no, because you don't stay up all night. You stay, well, you do stay up all night, but you don't stay, you stay up until daybreak. So, let me give you that time. I actually do need to know it for Sunday night. So, the time is, I have my Zmana map. I've told you about this before, right? My, my app here that calculates stuff. So, 5.12, 5.12 a.m. So you study till five, go home, nap a little. Sleep a little bit, yeah. Now, some people will go straight into davening pretty much right away because they stayed up all night anyway, so they'll go. But that's, Chabad doesn't do that um, for whatever reason. You know, it's nothing wrong with that, but a Chabad custom is typically to daven at the the normative time. Now, some people always daven super early at daybreak. Yeah. It's a, there's in a, Chicago, we used to do it like as a community-wide. Like it's yeah. really nice. The, the old neighborhood in Lakeview, the, the conservative, uh, reform, orthodox uh, synagogue will all come together and nice. do it by the lake. Nice. That's beautiful. The morning service. Yeah. It's beautiful. And I'll tell you, I had um, 
over Pesach, we were in Florida, in Orlando, and across the street from us, there was a minion called the, the Vesikin minion. It was that early morning minion. And there's something really beautiful about davening first thing in the morning, um, you know, with the sunrise. It's kind of like, it's quiet, and there's like nature's like doing its thing. And as you speak the prayers about, and you meditate on the prayers about talking about like how beautiful the world is that God made, it's like, you can relate, especially if you're outside, which is probably why they did it by the lake. Because if you're doing it in the morning, it's kind of cool to see that it's the morning. If you're in a building with the lights on, you know, it could be any time. But if you're outside, it's really special. But we're not going to, we're, we're doing 10 o'clock and uh, 10 a.m. for Monday and then 5.30 p.m. again for the, the holiday party. So if anyone's looking for more of a party, you know, if you're looking for service and Torah reading, yeah, that's no in the morning. Huh? Say, no lake, right. No, no lake. We have a bout line, though. You have a bell line, which is bell good. Line, yeah. yeah, prayer by the bell line is always is always cool. But either way, we're um, we have a few things Monday and then Tuesday again. We just have the morning service, ten a.m. and there's Yiskar, which is the memorial prayer that takes place on Monday, uh, Monday about probably eleven o'clock, eleven fifteen, somewhere around there. Will be Yiskar in the morning. All right, I think that's it. I, I'm looking here on my wife's desk at her school. And this looks like a kid's depiction of Mount Sinai. On, or maybe a red brick house, actually. No, probably a red brick house. And I'm just, Shavuos is on my brain. But I see grass, and I see a house, and I see sky and clouds. Matt, this looks like your sky and clouds that I was seeing before. And the sun. And, in this, the corner. and there's this, yeah. To make my son like that. I know, I, I, me too. Yeah. Always. This is like a clay. Clay little balls that are smushed down, so it's kind of cool. I hope I just, hope I didn't mess that up just now. Did I? Was that me? One of your kids? I have no idea, but I hope I, I see it. There's a squish mark. I hope that wasn't me. Um, anyway, I'm just gonna put this down and uh, <laughs> figure that out later. Yeah, it's on YouTube. <laughs> I, and that was forever. Yeah, it's YouTube, SoundCloud, the whole deal. There's basically no way that I can deny it at this point because the trail of evidence is just absolutely certain. It's. The rabbi picked it up and smushed it. No, I'm kidding. I don't know if I smushed it. It's not. No, I don't think it's smushable. It's actually pretty dry. Anyway, friends, have a good Shabbos. Lots of blessings. And let's prepare for receiving the Torah once again. 3,333 years. Let's get ourselves ready. Spiritually, practically, get you ready for cheesecake and ice cream and coffee and, uh, and, and all the dairy fun. All right. Good Shabbos. Lots of blessings. We'll see you guys soon. Take care, everybody. Bye, Ray, Sandrine, Donna, and Matt. Take care, guys. See you.